I want to invite you, if you can, I'm going to go into the word of the Lord, Acts chapter 15, verse 13. And we've been in this series now for several weeks, unstoppable. And I want to, uh, for a moment, minister something that God has laid on my heart. Acts chapter 15, verse 13, we'll be reading through verse 17. Amen. I'll give you a moment. Back in the days, uh, you would hear all the pages flipping in the Bible. <laughs> I kind of miss that sound, to be honest. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start a, a, a trend. You know, bring, bring your Bible to church, like the one that you can flip pages through. <laughs> I know we got them on our phones and all that, and that's great. But um, I miss the sound of pages turning. Amen. Anyhow, it reads this way. And after. They had become silent. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. I'm going to minister today from this thought, God's favorite house. Someone say in Jesus name, you may be seated at this time. Throughout history, there have been many famous buildings destroyed and rebuilt. One in particular, the White House, is especially important to us Americans, of course. It's probably our most iconic structure in the land. But what many people don't know is that the White House in Washington, D.C. Was, was not actually the original building that housed the first presidents of the United States. The original president's house actually burned down during the War of 1812 with the British. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember this part in your U.S. history class in high school. After it was destroyed, architect James Hoban worked to rebuild it for three years. And then President James Monroe moved into the new White House in 1817. Now what's interesting is that when the rebuilding of the White House started, efforts were made to reuse and salvage as much of the original materials as possible. That meant that uh, burned and charred stones were cleaned and then used again for the renewed building. This was done to maintain the historical significance of the house and to preserve its original glory. Now, with all due respect to the White House, and we respect it, our, our passage today speaks of an even greater house that God came to restore. It's a house also built with original materials, yet is focused on the future not the past. And what I've come today to preach 
is that Jesus came to build the spiritual house of God, his glorious church. Can I get an amen today? This is what God came to do. He came to rebuild a house. Acts, if I can just lay a foundation today, chapter 15, around 20 years after the day of Pentecost, covers the Jerusalem Council. Now you'll have to study on your own uh, all of the specific details of what they were addressing and discussing, but essentially it addressed the inclusion of Gentile believers without circumcision or adherence to every facet of the Mosaic law. And this was a hotly debated topic because the doors of the church were opening to many non-Jews, Gentiles, without uh, pedigree or background in Judaism. And so therefore, they did not adhere to those customs that were taught in the law of Moses. And so there was a lot of discussion about that. And, and this is when men of God, such as Peter and Paul, and here in this text, James stood up and began to defend these converted Gentiles. And when James stood up in his defense of these Gentiles who were now converted to Christianity, when he stands up, he describes uh, the tabernacle of David as a picture of the New Testament church. And it's interesting that out of all the, the three main tabernacles, Old Testament tabernacles, that the Lord favored David's. Compared to Moses' artfully crafted temple with all of its intricate designs and colors, and compared to Solomon's grand and breathtaking tabernacle, so great that people from near and far came to behold this great edifice that he had constructed, David's makeshift tent hardly qualifies as a tabernacle at all. Compared to these others, it was just but a humble little tent. But this humble little tent impressed God. It impressed God not because of the costly luxurious furnishings, not because of the brilliant array of colors that adorned the tabernacle of Moses or the gold-plated floors, walls, and ceilings that, that, that covered the temple of Solomon. It had none of those things. All it was was like a tent that you might see at a campground pitched outside of David's palace. But it, what was the thing that made it so valuable and so precious to God what, what was happening on the inside? You see, David's temple was in many ways emblematic of his early life, overlooked and underrated next to his bigger brothers. But just like the choosing of David, God wasn't drawn to the outward appearance of the temple 
but to what was going on within the temple. I want to tell you today that what impresses God is different than what impresses man. Amen. I said what impresses God is different than what what we are impressed by is different than what God is impressed by. Man is impressed and was impressed by the structures of Solomon and all the great jewels and gold that went into that, the impressive structure. But God was drawn to this humble makeshift tent that David set up for the ark of God. The tabernacle of David and the New Testament church share some distinct features today that I want to point out, all of which reflect what God is wanting to rebuild in this hour. All of which reflect what God wants to see in His church. God doesn't want His church to look like the Temple of Solomon. He doesn't even want it to look like the iconic original temple of Moses. But there is something about the tabernacle of David that God wants to restore. And the first thing I want to bring to your attention and call to your mind today about what it was about this tabernacle that when the doors of the church were opening to the Gentile world made it the tabernacle that God wanted to use to illustrate the, 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 the kingdom of God, which was this, number one, unlimited reach. Number one, unlimited, unlimited reach. Someone say unlimited reach. Upon returning the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes the presence of God, David did something unexpected. And I want to take you to that moment where David had the responsibility to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. He placed it in Jerusalem near his palace. A decision that certainly would have disrupted the old religious norms, the old religious model, and displeased the priest at the time. Interestingly enough, at this time, the tabernacle of Moses was still a fully functioning temple, albeit without the ark, but it was still fully operational, located in Gibeon, just about six miles from Jerusalem. So when David brings back the ark of God, which had been captured by their enemies, the Philistines, and he is coming to reestablish this symbol of God's presence among his people, interestingly, he does not take it back to the fully functioning temple of Moses. But he brings, now, I would assume that the temple located in Gibeon, the temple, the tabernacle of Moses, would be the ideal place to house the Ark of the Covenant since it had everything already there. It was fully set up. It was fully equipped. It had priests that were ready to go. It had altars that were already polished. It had, it had everything. It had sacrifice. In fact, they were still doing sacrifices there. At the, it was fully equipped. It was fully set up. It had everything you could need to have a fully operational temple, except there was no glory there. 
And I think that looks like a lot of churches today. Mm. I'm going to need some help this afternoon. I think that looks like a lot of churches today. They, they, they've got all that you could possibly want. They've got cutting-edge program. They've got a cutting-edge building. They've got all the bells and the whistles. They've got this and they've got, they've got that. They've got everything. It's impressive. They've got, they've got exactly what you need. It's a turnkey operation. But the one thing that many are missing is the Ark of the Covenant, which is the glory of God. But God is not looking for a church that has all of the, and I'm not saying I'm not against, I'm not saying I'm against those things. If you can have all of those things and have the glory of God, well then wonderful. But God is saying, I would rather you have just but a little tent and my presence than to have all of those things and not have my presence. Come on, somebody say amen today. And so David had a more broader, more inclusive vision of God's presence. Uh, placing the ark in the capital city of Jerusalem was a strategic move that, among other things, made it more accessible, more central to ordinary people. The fact that the, uh, that the, uh, the tabernacle of Moses was six miles away from the center of the population and activity almost sent a message that this is over here and you're over there. It sent a message that, 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 you're, that you're not holy enough or good enough to get this because this is only for the priest and this is only for the, for the righteous. And so it sent a message that, that there is a gap between the, the ordinary, the common people, and, and where the, the presence of God was. But David, in his heart for God, and wanting to establish a new order and a new system, said, I'm not going to make this inaccessible. I, When I bring the covenant of God back to the people of Israel, I want to put it square in the middle of the city where my palace is, so that all of the citizens and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all all of Judea and all of Israel can see for themselves that God is among his people. And he put it in the middle of Jerusalem. And this offers to us today, church, a glimpse of what Jesus came to do and what the church is called to be. The church is not meant to be an exclusive club for the ultra-religious. No. The church is meant to be right smack dab in the middle of where darkness is is of where sin is that we might shine and we might be that city on a hill and we might be a light to the the world somebody give God some praise today I don't want to move city light church to the mountains somewhere where nobody can reach us and the, and, and the faithful are just getting more faithful. No, I want city light to be right in the middle of the city. I want this church, and this is what God wants for this church, to be right where we are so that the doors of this church can be open to whosoever will would want to come and be saved and know that Jesus is alive. This place does not exist purely as a place for righteous people to become more righteous, for saved to become more. I mean, how many times do you have to be saved? How many times do we got people that are, we got people that are getting saved every Sunday? We just can't, I mean, how many times? Come on, allow me, Lord, today. You know, we got people that are saved, and then you know those people that are extra saved? <laughs> you're saved or you're not saved. You know, you're not extra saved. But you got people that are extra saved. 
Praise God. Help me, Holy Ghost, today. God didn't set up this church in the world so that the saved can get extra saved. He set up this church uh, and he set up his kingdom so that the sinner could be forgiven. And so that the lost could be found. Oh, hallelujah. And so that the broken could be restored. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. This church, the church of Jesus Christ, exists to be a place for sinners to find repentance for their sins and redemption of their souls. If you believe that, give God a hand praise today, church. So we cannot isolate ourselves. From the world and run from the darkness. No, we have to take the light to the darkest corners. The gospel is for everyone. It's for you. It's for your friend. It's for your relative. Amen, somebody. It's for your neighbor. It's for everyone. Say everyone. It's for everyone. Not only was David's tabernacle centrally located, but it was also designed with an open concept. Unlike before, David's tent had no enclosures, especially for its most valuable artifact. And this brings me to the next feature, which is unveiled access. Mm, hallelujah. Unveiled access. Unlike Moses and Solomon's temple, the tabernacle of David had no veil or no barrier separating the glory of God, the Ark of the Covenant, with the people. I want to tell you something. That that veil that we read about and hear about that existed in the tabernacle of Moses and of Solomon. I want to tell you something. That God never liked that idea. That God didn't like that veil. Just because that veil was there doesn't mean that God liked it. The veil existed for a purpose. And the purpose was so that... So that, that his holiness or his, his righteousness would not destroy unholy people. It existed for the idea of preserving life, life of sinful humanity as they came to worship him. And therefore, only the high priest once a year would enter beyond that veil into the holies of holies on the day of atonement to make atonement for the sins of the people. But let us not ever think that God likes there to be a veil between him, a barrier or a separation between him and his people. That was never God's original plan. If it were, then there would have been a veil in the Garden of Eden when he was walking with Adam in the cool of the day. That was never God's original plan. God's original plan was always to be fully accessible and available to his people. God, my God, I want to preach here today. It was always the plan of God that we might draw near to him and know him and fellowship with him and there not be any barrier, any wall, any veil separating from the glory of almighty God. Hallelujah. Rabbinical history says that this heavy veil measured 60 feet high and 30 feet wide and it was four inches thick. 
that meant that there was no man that was able to tear it down. I'm not talking about a veil like the ones that our sisters wear in the house of God. Uh, you know, a thin veil. I'm talking about a thick veil, four inches thick and 60 feet high. This thing was like a wall and there was no way that you could tear it or rip it apart. And this is how many people are in their relationship with God. There are walls between them and the next level. Walls and, and barriers between them and, 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 and intimacy with God. And this is how it was for many generations. Many generations in the Old Testament for hundreds and hundreds of years there existed this barrier. But Jesus Christ came to change all of that. Oh, somebody say amen. I said somebody say amen. Everything changed that day on Calvary when the divine mediator himself, Jesus the Lord, came and died on a cross. The Bible says this in Matthew 27 and verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, someone say behold, the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. Jesus said, I came into this world so that I can rip that barrier that was between. My God, I wish somebody would get excited about that today. I came to rip that tear and tear that thing down so that each and every one of you can access him. Can we give God some worship right now? Can we give him some praise today? Can we thank him today? The oh my God, hallelujah. The fact that the veil was torn from the top down signifies that this came from God and not man. Had it been torn from the bottom up, you can say that a man did it. You can say that it was engineered that way. But it was torn from the top down. Jesus said, I came into this world to tear this thing down so that whosoever will could come into my presence and experience me, oh God. Oh, hallelujah. I'm thankful that God did this for me. And he paid the ultimate price so that we can go beyond the veil. How many of you are thankful that we can go beyond the veil today? I said, how many of you are thankful we can go beyond the veil today? Oh, but he paid the price. Yes, he did. Spiritually speaking, Jesus had to become the veil. He himself had to become the veil with his own body. You see, for Christ himself was torn like that veil. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Oh, Jesus himself was torn. In fact, scripture teaches us in Hebrews, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest of holies by the blood of Jesus. Someone say the blood. Come on, somebody say the blood. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. You see, it costs us. It costs someone something. It costs Jesus his very life. 
us going beyond the veil was not the product of man's ingenuity. It was not the product of us just getting holier. It was not the product of us figuring things out. Oh no, but there had to be blood that was shed. And Jesus paid that ultimate price at Calvary. Oh, hallelujah. I've got to worship him today. And when he paid that price and he allowed his body to be shed and to be uh, crucified for us. Oh, at that very moment, the doors to the ark, the doors to the glory were opened up so that we can step in and know him like he is. I thank God today that I'm not under the old covenant. Come on now, somebody. I thank God today that I can enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Come on, where's my help today? I can enter into his course with prayer. I thank God today that I can enter in. Can somebody give God some glory? Can somebody give God some praise this afternoon? Somebody shout hallelujah. Why don't you take a moment right there, brother, and just enter in. Enter into beyond the veil. Go beyond with your worship. It cost him every ounce of his blood. It cost him every ounce of his life so that we can step in we can know him and we can serve him that we can worship him in the beauty of holiness furthermore under the old covenant only the priest only the high priest could enter into the holies of holies but now under the new covenant of Christ every born again believer oh hallelujah is granted access every born again believer we're not just granted access we have been granted priesthood status oh hallelujah I don't know if you know this but if you're born again you're a priest <laughs> if you're born again you're a priest I know some of us have this idea of a priest as somebody you know walking around in a black suit with a little white little little, little box right here on his that's, that's not a priest with all due respect a priest is someone who has been born again into the kingdom of God because when we do that each and every, this is what the Bible says in 1 Peter 2 9 he says but you you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Someone say priesthood. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you are born again of the water and of the spirit, you have been changed. Your status has been changed. You are no longer just a commoner. You are no longer just an ordinary person. You are now a priest that is able to, my God, step in into the glory of God. Oh, I get excited when I think about this. Oh, I get excited because that tells me that I am a somebody. I'm not just an anybody, but I am a somebody to God. Somebody ought to give God some praise. You have been chosen. You have been called and you ought to be able to step into his presence with boldness and call upon that name. Oh, coming before him with boldness, entering to his throne with boldness as a priest. Every one of us, when we pray, every time you pray, brother, every time you pray, sister, you're not just praying as an outsider. You're praying as an insider. Someone say, I'm an insider. Ah, come on, say it again. Say, I'm an insider. Oh, I got special access to God. 
God. I wish somebody would hear what I'm saying today. Can I preach like I want to? Uh, I said, can I preach like I want to? You got special access to God. Oh, that means anytime you need to call on him, he's just a phone call away. He's just a text. Maybe I got to modernize it. He's just a text message away. Oh, God is not too far. I hate it when I need help and I got to call customer service. Don't you hate it when you need to get something fixed on your bank account? Come on now, somebody. Or you need the airline to fix something and you got to dial all these numbers. And then just when you thought you got a real person, you hear a voice. Oh, I'm talking. Oh, no, it's a computer voice. My goodness. And they start talking. Is there anything that they're getting really good, aren't they? With those voices, almost like you're talking to somebody who is real. And just tell me what your problem is. And I figured this out. I said, I don't want to talk to you. How many of you are like me? You just start kicking zero and zero, zero, zero. I don't want to talk to you. Come on. Do I got any zero pushers out there? I want to talk to somebody. I've come to tell you today, you don't got to go through me. You don't got to go through your brother. You don't got to go through your sister. If you want to talk to God, all you got to do is lift up your hands. Come on now, somebody. Open up your mouth and give God the glory. Oh, hallelujah, somebody. You can call them up. We used to sing that saying, call that song. Call them up, call them up. Tell them what you want. Some you never heard that song. But that's what we would say. And that's what we got to do because we have a priestly access. We're not just anybody. And David set up that temple in the middle of the town square, in the middle of Jerusalem, so that everybody no matter how bad they were no matter what things that they had done no matter what problems existed in their life they can see with their own eyes the presence of God oh my Lord my Lord but, but all of this notice what it says here ha, let me read it for you again I'm almost done praise be to God oh hallelujah it's just helping anybody today are you being blessed by this but listen he said but you are a chosen generation Somebody say amen for that. Amen. I'm chosen. We, we, you know, we got to decide. You got to decide whether you're going to be the chosen generation or the frozen generation. Uh, that's another message, brother. Huh? Okay. A holy nation. How many of you know holiness is right? Uh, that was kind of weak. I said, how many of you know holiness is right? We got to get back to holiness. Oh, my Lord. Hallelujah. A holy nation and his own special people. And watch what it says. It doesn't stop there. That you may proclaim the praises. Someone say praises. Uh, God said, I did all of that for you. I brought you out and I brought you in. Who, my Lord. I, met, I took you from the destruction of this world. I took you out of the miry clay. I brought you out of that pit of sin. I brought, I took you from the outside and brought you into the inside. Why? Not so that you can just sit there. Mm, my God. Not so that you can just be cute. Not so that you can just be a little wonder walking around. No, I brought you in so that you might show forth, my Lord. That you might proclaim the praise. Oh! This brings me to the last point about David's tabernacle, which was that it was a place of unceasing worship. Somebody say worship. Oh, come on. Somebody shout worship. 
Yes, the most powerful component about David's tabernacle began long before the tabernacle was ever built. It started in a young shepherd boy who would play his harp out under the stars in the pastures with his sheep. It started with a shepherd boy who would sing for the audience of one. It started with a young boy with his stone and his sling and his shepherd's rook and his little harp and singing unto God in love with his creator. In love with, oh my God, I'm going to preach myself into a fit today. In love with his creator. See, this kind of language bothers some of you because you've lost sight of your first love. You take 30 minutes to warm up before you start worshiping. If they sing the right song, then you'll worship. If it's just the right beat, then you'll celebrate. I rebuke that spirit. God has been too good for us to sit there and act like God's got to do something else. Oh my God. Hey! And so David my Lord David he, he, he's a worshiper at heart he's the only one who the Bible says was a man after God's own heart this was a man that above all of his faults and failures and he had many was a worshiper at heart and so that desire for worship and that hunger for the presence of God carried over into his tabernacle and when he built his tabernacle he said you know what I got nothing against all of the animal sacrifices that, that Moses used to do. They are all types and figures. They are all wonderful in their place. But he said, I want a new kind of church. Mm, my God. I want a new kind of assembly. I want a new kind of dwelling place. And so instead of sacrifices of animals, he included sacrifices of praise. Oh my God. And so what made the temple of David so special and so unique and I believe this is what tugged God's heart so much that he said, I want to rebuild that temple. It's because David surrounded the tabernacle where the glory was with nonstop worship, nonstop praise, nonstop singing and dancing and shouting. Oh my God, what a time of rejoicing it must have been. Can you imagine, Brother David, what it was like for a 24-hour service, one that never stopped, one that never, can you imagine? Ah, oh, hallelujah. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You could hear the sound of worship. You could hear the sound of praise emanating from the tabernacle of David. Oh, you can hear it from near and far they wouldn't stop clapping they wouldn't stop kneeling they wouldn't stop praising they wouldn't stop singing they wouldn't stop shouting and you say why would they do that pastor I'll tell you why because they saw their leader David when they brought back the ark of the covenant was there sacrifice yes there was there's always going to be sacrifices that's not what we're saying every seven steps they sacrifice sacrificed an animal on the way back but this happened when they finally got back to Jerusalem and set up the temple the Bible says that David began to rejoice the Bible says that David began to rejoice and the Bible says that David danced before the Lord with all his might hey! 
he dares, he dares, he dares. He dares, why? Because when you love him, when you love him, when he's your all in all, when he's your everything, oh, you will put your titles aside. You will humble yourself and you will worship him with everything that you have. I wonder if there's somebody like that here today. Come on, come on, come on. Oh, you know what happened? When David was dancing, his wife got an attitude. She's like, boy, this guy, this guy's a king. He done messed this thing up. And she tried to rebuke him later. She said, is this how the king is supposed to act? Yet with all the people looking at you like this and you dancing your, your royal tea, your royal robes off and you're getting all, and, and, and she tried to correct him. And there will be people that will try to shut down your praise. Don't get me started in here. Oh, I said, there's going to be people that are going to look at you all sideways like they got a, a mosquito in their eye when they start seeing you lifting up your hand and dancing. You know why? Because your prayer. You're all going to help me out here. You know why? Because your passion puts them on notice. They are. Your praise, your passion makes them uncomfortable because they had done forgot what it is to. But you got to be like David and said, he said, woman, in my own way, he said this. He said, if you think this is bad, I'm about to be more undignified than this. 